Last week, I recorded my sermon as I preached, and at the end of the service, hit the button and said, save it, and it said it was saving, and then I went to my phone later, and there was nothing there. So, Lord willing, it won't happen again. <laughs> and we're going, to, uh, we're going to talk to you this morning about the second part of the sermon series. Uh, last week, we talked about what is eternal life. This week, I want to talk to you about what is abundant life. And I refer, I refer you to the two portions of Scripture. First of all, Matthew chapter 10, and we'll be staying in Matthew chapter 10 for a good long while. And then also, um, John chapter 10. So, first of all, Matthew chapter 10, uh, verses 29 to 31. And let me give you just the background real quick, just to refresh you. Um, we, we read this a few weeks ago. John, Jesus is with the disciples. He's out in the public. He's teaching. And a rich man comes up. A rich young man comes running up, it says, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And then the whole scenario about you've got to do this, and I've done that, and you have to do this, and I've done that. Well, then one thing you lack, you need to sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And it says the guy ran away, walked away sad. And then Jesus uh, says it's very hard for a rich man to get into heaven. It's even harder than putting a camel through the eye of a needle. And Peter looks at Jesus and says, but we've, we've left everything. What about us? And this is Jesus' response to Peter. I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about being the good or the great shepherd. And, it, and he talks about thieves and robbers that come to steal and kill and destroy and how he is the gate at the sheepfold and how he protects his sheep and he guards his sheep and they only follow him. And at this one point in John chapter 10, verse, verse 10, in that scenario, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, or destroy. I have come that they may have life. Life in its fullest measure. If you read certain verses, certain translations, it'll say abundant life. And as I read these weeks ago and was preparing my heart for these sermons, I was like, well, what is the difference between eternal life and abundant life? There is, there's got to be a difference or why would he use different words? And so we looked last week at what it means to have eternal life. And I don't want to rehash that, but just understand that there is a difference between eternal life and abundant life that Jesus talked about. And he said abundant life would be in this present age and eternal life was in the age to come. So that then leaves us with the question, when Jesus promised us an abundant life, what did he have in mind? I mean, is it the same as what we perceive? To having abundance, an abundant life? Think about this. If you, if you look at our culture in, Western, in the Western Hemisphere in North America and compare our culture 
with just about every other culture around the world. The United States and Canada, but the United States specifically, we are filthy, stinking rich, folks. How many people around the world have what we have? Not many. How many people around the world can afford the things that we have? Not many. How many people around the world live for a full month on what some of us get paid by the hour to work? So we have kind of a warped sense of abundance. But we in our arrogance think, well, if I'm a servant God, then I should be able to name it and claim it, get whatever I want. And I will tell you that that is from the enemy. It is not of the word of, the word of God. It is not from the Holy Spirit to name anything and claim it. That's arrogant. How dare you think that you can tell God what he's going to give you? Your responsibility is to submit to his leadership, his authority, and what he says is best for you is best for you. End of discussion. But he promised us abundance. So what does that mean? Because if it's not riches, what is it? Well, first of all, let's start looking and reasoning through this. And I'm not saying that it isn't riches. I'm just saying it doesn't seem to be for me. And we're going to examine this and get to an end, which is going to leave you with a question so that you can talk about it next week. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 23, just a few verses above where we were. Jesus looked around to the crowd and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But if he's about to tell them that they're going to live an abundant life, then why would he tell them that it would be difficult for them to be rich and be in the kingdom of God? If indeed abundance means riches. You see, the disciples were Jews, first century Jews. And in their Hebrew mindset, they were not prepared for his statement. And if you look at verse 24, somebody who's right there at chapter Mark chapter 10, verse 24, read to us what it says the, uh, the disciples were. They were astonished at his words. Why would they be astonished at his words? Because what Jesus just said to them is countercultural. Think about their heritage as Hebrews. Abraham, the friend of God, the faithful one. God said, I will bless you so that you and your family can be a blessing to the world. But look at Abraham's life. He was filthy, stinking rich. Look at Job, the righteous one, the one who was a friend of God, the one who God held in high honor. How did God reward him? He was filthy, stinking rich. And after the time of testing, what did God do? He replaced it and increased it. And then look at Solomon, the wise king who followed King David. God, I desire nothing of you other than wisdom so that I can, then can rule these people effectively to bring glory to you. God said, because you answered right, I'll give you the wisdom and I'll give you the riches. The Jewish Heritage was, you live righteously, you live pleasing to God, he's going to bless you with lots of stuff. 
Look at the Jewish mindset of today. And I'm not being disparaging. I'm simply saying, look at the culture of today. They are still of the mindset that they are the chosen people. And as a result, God blesses them abundantly. When you think of diamonds, who do you think of? Jewish people in New York. Diamond traders. They're Jewish people in New York. When you think of very, very wealthy people. Jewish people in New York. Normally, if you're from the East Coast, especially you think that. For a lot of them. It's still, they're, they're the retirees. They're the ones that moved down. They don't need to be up in that noise anymore. But they got their money still. And there's this mindset that if you honor and serve God, you'll be blessed. And do we not have that in our culture? God said, Jesus told his disciples, if I would honor him and serve him and be righteous, I would live an abundant life. So bring it on, God, I'm ready. See, it was countercultural for Jesus to say you can't be rich and get into heaven very easily. And they were like, what? Now, Jesus, I mean, let me quote to you one of, the, one of the commentators that I read. It said, to enter into the kingdom and into eternal life is beyond the achievement of human beings. But in the grace of God, all people, whether they're rich or poor, can enter. The entrance fee is the same for everyone. But this is, this is the thing that's interesting. He said, the entrance fee is the same for everyone. It's the pearl of great price. Think about that. Let's look at what that what he's referring to. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. Jesus is telling this parable and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then he, in his joy, he went, he sold everything he had, and he bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and then bought that pearl. So what this commentator is saying is the entrance fee into the kingdom of God is the same for everyone. It's the pearl that costs you everything you have. But Peter, in this scenario, in Mark chapter 10, says, rich people can't get into heaven unless they give up everything. But what about us? We've given up everything. I mean, we gave up a lot to follow you, Jesus. I gave up a business. I walked away from all of my assets. I just walked away from it. What's in it for me, Jesus? I mean, I've sacrificed for a long time following you. What's in it for me? And Jesus turns to him and he says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left their home or their brothers or sisters or their mother or father or the children or their fields or their boat for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions. And then in the age to come, eternal life. So that's what you're going to get, Peter. A hundred times more than what you gave up. Really? Cool. I'm blessed of God, so I'm going to get. This is so great. Bring it on, God. Abundance in this life and eternal life in the age to come. This is great.
great. Look at Peter's life. What did he get? I don't think he got houses and land and, and fishing fleet. And So was Jesus lying to him? Same commentator talking about this scenario. What is gained will far outweigh what is lost. When Matthew was telling this story, he immediately followed this story about the rich young man and the interaction with Peter about what what about us and how you're going to get abundant life. And the very next thing that is in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, is the story of the vineyard owner who went out in the early hours of the morning and hired some workers to go work in his field and agreed to pay them a denarius for their day's work. And then he went out around 11 o'clock, and then he went around around 3 o'clock, and then he went out at the last hour of the day, and he kept hiring more and more people. And finally, when it came time to reconcile with all of them, he started with the ones who were hired last and started paying them the same amount that he was paying the ones who were hired first. And the guys who were hired first started fussing. And what was the rebuke that the vineyard owner made to those who were complaining? Look at verses 13 through 15 of Matthew chapter 20. Does somebody have that readily? I'm turning to it. But. I am doing no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So now let's, let's reason through this. I mean, the, the focus on this story has always been, you're wrong for fussing because I told you I was going to give you something and now you're mad because somebody else got the same thing as you and that doesn't make sense to you. Too bad. It's my money. I'll do what I want with it. Eh. I mean, it's basically the story. But let's think about this. Jesus said, follow me and you're going to get an abundance. hundred times more than what you give up. And here, in Jesus' story, Matthew chapter 20, it says, every one of you that come into my kingdom are going to get treated equally. Bring it on! Abundance! A hundred times! What? How come I don't got what you got? Wait a minute. You have much more than I have. Some of you. And some of you have much less than I have. So where's the equity Where's this, we're all getting treated the same? If indeed the story is that we're all going to be given abundance in this life, how come some of you get so much more than me? I mean, reality, let's look at it. I get paid about $15 an hour for 40 hours work week. Some of you are making close to $20, $25. Some of you are making 6 Where's the equity in that? Jesus, you promised if I give up everything, I get abundance. And you said everyone gets treated equally. So what's the problem, God? How come they get more than me? How come I get all the trouble? How come my sister has to deal with pain and struggle and, and twisted body and the, somebody else walks around perfectly fine? 
at the end of the day, you get treated equally. Okay, good point. But didn't Jesus say, anyone who follows me gets a hundredfold times what they gave up? See, these are things that I've struggled with in my own walk. And I'm not giving you the answer. I'm just telling you, these are things that I'm struggling with in my own walk. Oh, so you gave up more, so you get more? Is that what the deal is? Fine. Let's play the game. Okay, come on. Bring it on. You tell me what you gave up. I'll tell you what I give up. We'll see who decides what we got the better one. No. Let me, let me read to you. This is my personal journal. Okay, I'm bearing my soul here. Get over it. Um, if you can't deal with it, go out of the room. If you can deal with it, then I have to go out of the room because it's a little bit uncomfortable. But anyway, yesterday... Um, in my office, God just kind of filled that room with his Shekinah glory. And I was reading these verses of scripture, Psalm 63, verses 1 to 3. We read them at the beginning of the service. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I have seen, now listen to that. I'm thirsty in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Meaning I am so desperate to be satisfied. I've seen you in the sanctuary and I've beheld your power and your glory. And I'm desperate for that. I'm desperate to have access to you. And this is the response. Verse 3. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. As I read these words today, I was reminded that my whole reason for living is to experience God's love. Last night, my daughter Amanda experienced another seizure, and this time she fell and cut open her forehead just above her right eye, and my heart is aching for my baby. And I want to rush down to Kansas and grab her in my arms and protect her from all harm. And as I write these words, I'm checked in my spirit that she is a married woman with a family of her own. Her husband is her protection, and he is taking care of her in her weakness. And I trust Forrest. He's an excellent husband and father. But that does not negate my feelings of love for Amanda. She's my daughter. We will always share that bond. A father's love for his child. And it is the same with all of my girls. I love them with a passionate love. And I would fight all of hell to protect them. I would willingly give my life for my girls. And as I reflect on today's passage... God's love is better than life. I recognize that God's love for me is a father's love for his child. His love is a fierce love. His love is as fierce for me as my love is for my daughter's. And being enveloped in his love is better than even life itself. So Lord, let me rest in your love.
But then as I was praying and asking God what I needed to say to you, literally, he pointed me to this entry, which was almost a year ago. Father, I've been trying to read your word this day, and unfortunately, I've had distraction after distraction. Please help me to spend time in quiet reflection. Help me to clearly hear your voice. A few minutes ago, I heard a song from the album, Do You See What I See by Todd Agnew. The title of the song is, This Is All I Have to Give. It's a song about Joseph's reflections as he watches over Jesus in the manger. The words of the song are, I'd always thought about how I'd teach you to build your first chair and how to treat your mom, your lovely mom, and how to explain the reckless love of God to your simple mind. But what can I offer you, my son? When you're the living, breathing proof of everything I hoped could possibly be true. One phrase stuck out of all of those words. How do I explain the reckless love of God to your simple mind? Why did that phrase pop? What are you, what are you trying to say to me, Holy One? What is reckless about your love? Looking up the word reckless in the dictionary, I see that it means utterly unconcerned about the consequences of some action, without caution, careless. Well, using that definition, I would have to say that your love is reckless because, well, you extended it freely without respecting the character of the recipient. All are welcome in your love. You freely love all. Even if it ends up hurting you. Rejection. You freely love all, even if it costs you everything. Jesus died because of your love. I'm sure that there are more ways to define your love as reckless, but these three are the ones that first come to my mind. And interestingly, the response of my soul as I wrote them down was, well, the first one was neutral. Even though it's a statement of truth, it's still neutral. The second one, my soul was gripped. And then the third one was kind of neutral. Why was my soul so moved by the idea of freely loving without regard for protecting myself against rejection? <clears throat> That's a pretty stupid question, Bob. You, your biggest hot button is fear of rejection. If I'm trying to strive to be a Christ-like man, I need to learn to love freely, even if it means I might be rejected by the person I'm trying to love. Offering love places one in a very vulnerable position. It nearly, in nearly any other interaction between human beings, the participants can, to a degree, keep their guard up. But to truly love, one must open their heart up. There can be no barrier placed before the object of one's love. It's a very vulnerable position to be in. Father, Help me to be truly Christ-like, even in my offering of unconditional love. Help me to drop my guard and just love. So I would submit to you, as we're looking at this idea of abundance, that the enemy would try to make you think that God is reneging on promises made by not giving you financial wealth or uh, physical property or uh, 
it even said relationships. So let's say large family and, and lots of uh, love and maybe some of you are single and wish, why can't I ever be married or whatever the case may be. And the enemy would whisper to you, he's reneging on his promise. Where's this abundance that he promised you? But I would submit to you that living within the shelter of the Almighty God and his abundant, unrestricted, unconditional love is worth far more than anything you had to give up. Because anything that you strive for in this world, be it finances, physical property, human relationships, all of them will still leave you feeling empty. You can have all of the wealth of the world and still not feel completely satisfied. You could have the finest home in the community with all of the square footage you could ever possibly want and all the money to heat it. And still feel lonely within those walls. You could have relationship and cousins and aunts and uncles and have a family reunion every six months where all 775,000 of you gather in the room and be utterly alone. I would rather be a servant in the temple of my God than be anything else or any place else or have anything else. Just the privilege of being in his presence is more than enough and is so much more than anything that I would have given up. So indeed, I submit to you, each one of us have equally received abundance. Because each one of us have equally received his presence in our lives. He doesn't hold back on any of us. Talk amongst yourselves tonight. Let's pray.